Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is the last laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast. It was right around Thanksgiving four years ago when I first talked to Mike Birbiglia for this podcast backstage during the Los Angeles run of his first Broadway show, The New One. This week, his latest show, The Old Man and the Pool, premiered on Netflix, and I'm so glad that he is back to talk all about it and go even deeper than we did last time into his very unique process and style as a comedian. I always knew Mike cared a lot about getting his material as solid as possible before presenting it in its final form, but I really had no idea how much he cared until I started listening to his podcast, Working It Out, in which he sits down with fellow comedians and talks through new bits in real time. As I tell Mike in this conversation, it's become one of my absolute favorite podcasts because, as he puts it, it really is like getting to see something in public that has always been a private ritual between comedians. And then there's The Old Man in the Pool, which is a simultaneously hilarious and quite moving examination of aging and mortality from the comedian who turned 45 this year and is no longer the next big thing that he was when he put out shows like Sleepwalk With Me and My Girlfriend's Boyfriend more than a decade ago. In this clip from his new show, Mike notices something weird about the signs at the YMCA pool where his doctor told him he needed to swim five days a week if he wanted to stay alive. I'm sort of obsessed with the signs at the Y because I feel like they, to- they tell you the stories of what has occurred at the Y. You know, there's that one that says slippery when wet, and you know some kid went down pretty hard in them tiles. <laughs> a frazzled lifeguard grabbed a Sharpie and wrote, slippery when. You don't see when on a lot of signage. <laughs> it's not often a subordinate clause is utilized in a form that values brevity. Slippery when wet, could just say slippery. <laughs> it's wet majority of the time. I mean, there was this sign growing up that said, please shower before entering the, the pool. And I feel like that was written for one guy. You know what I mean? Like, I think the first draft of that one said, Greg. Well, Mike, great to see you. You too. I've had two kids since wow. you were last on the podcast. Congrats. Holy Thank cow. Thank you. Um, you started a podcast, which is equally that important. Happened, yeah. yeah. Um, working, working it, it out. out. Yeah. Which I, I, I got to tell you, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Um, Thank you so much. And I'm especially jealous of how you found a way to get comedians to try out bits <laughs> on the podcast, yeah, which is yeah. not easy to do. By necessity. It was... Uh... Yeah, it's a pandemic baby because it's it was one of those things you couldn't perform in front of audiences, couldn't have groups in a room. And so I said, well, even though I goes against everything I've ever believed in, <laughs> which is that you shouldn't share your work of how you arrived at a great joke and show people the sort of junky versions along the way. Um, 
I just said, what if I tried it? And then here we are 115 episodes later. And now it's like a big part of my life. And now I'm touring and doing the pod at the same time. It's cool. Does it actually help you? Do you feel like has the podcast helped you become a, a better stand-up comedian by working out jokes with these comics and sort of bouncing ideas off of them? Or is that something you were doing privately and now you're doing it publicly? Or, or how do you how do you think about it? Yeah, that's what it is. I was doing it privately for since the since jump, pretty much. You know, like I I feel like it's a thing that is and unspoken about stand-up is that is that for the most part stand-ups are in communities of comedians who kick around joke joke tags and hey what if you did this with it and i have a similar story about this and you know you could use that if you want to or whatever it is and it's like i don't know like uh and then we kind of just put it out there as a with audio rolling yeah, I mean, for me, and I think for anyone who listens to your podcast and now will see your your show, um, The Old Man in the Pool, either saw it live or will see it on Netflix, it's been incredibly rewarding to see that process play out over now several years. Um, you know, I remember, you know, hearing you work out some of the original, you know, jokes from the show on your podcast and then seeing them in their in their final version. I got to see the show on Broadway in New York, which was wonderful and and then just got to see the the Netflix version as well. So yeah, I mean, how how do you how do you think about that in terms of the jokes that started on the podcast almost and now are are out there in this finished form? I think that w what's happened is that uh for me I, hearing the recorded versions of it I go, "Oh, a majority of my jokes are just things that are way too long in their first state and they're kind of rambling. <laughs> and then over the process of doing hundreds and hundreds of performances, they whittle down to being like eight words or 15 words or whatever it is. And that's the whole joke. And, and it's, uh, yeah, it's sort of fun, but it's also vulnerable because you're like showing the like 45 word version of people and people are like, Oh, He's not so smart after all. He's, uh, you know, but it's like, which is, of course, you know, true. It's like, it's like we're all the best comedians I know are are people who work on the same jokes and stories over and over and over and over again for for a few years until they're done. And um, and the and the comedians who I feel like often are maybe not as uh, my favorite are people who seem pretty content once a joke works well enough yeah as, you're not you're not a well enough kind of guy you gotta, <laughs> i'm you gotta, sort of you obsessed keep, with making it better how has that are there examples of of how that's played out that that are in the new show something that you either got some really good advice about or yeah. had a comedian give you some idea that you that you really took to heart i remember i was i was, I was on a couple of years ago with natasha leone and and i i ran a, a few jokes by her that i thought were really great jokes and she didn't really laugh that much and and then she goes she goes mike what where's where's the, the the vulnerable stuff where's the stuff where that i love and sleepwalk with me where you you know you open up and you say a thing that you that that is in your soul you know and then on the spot i literally i think i told like two stories that were really maybe i was on the fence about telling and i told two of them and then one of them ends up in the show and i think it's an example of like when your peers or people who you admire um point something out to you you really do take it to heart 
Yeah, which was the one that ended up in the show? It was the one about my uh, one of my close friends growing up passed away and when he was in his 50s and I remember being at the funeral and I, I remember afterwards my parents being drunk and I remember just thinking like, oh, I don't know if anyone can handle death because you know, the show is all about death and dying and 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 I think ultimately it was important for me to find certain stories like that where where I'm I'm speaking to like how I really feel about it as opposed to just sort of like <laughs> my coping mechanism, which is jokes. How did you arrive at aging and mortality as the theme of, of what you really wanted to talk about in the show? I, I'm just so focused on uh obsession. What are you obsessed with? And and if if you're obsessed with it, then chances are you have a pretty funny take on it, you know, and, and a worthwhile take. And I don't know, I feel like the thing that at that point in time I was most obsessed with was death. And, and at this moment right now, like the thing I'm touring with right now, Please Stop the Ride, is I'm kind of obsessed with my daughter's eight years old and I'm seeing life through her eyes and uh, and it's flashing me back to when I was that old and I would look at my parents and I thought like, oh, I guess they know everything. And now I'm 45 and I have this eight-year-old child like, oh my God, I don't know anything, you know? And so I'm sort of like, it's sort of this uh, cross-cutting between like my childhood self and my grown-up self. And and uh, I don't know, I think it's, I think it's, it's what I'm obsessed with because it's like, it's it's um I feel like every now and then in your in your life something hits you where you go oh I think about this a lot and I haven't really heard anyone talk about it so I think I'm going to talk about this yeah my my father definitely told me that he knew everything and <laughs> I fully <laughs> and I fully believed him <laughs> so now I have to decide whether whether to take that same approach or not he sounds charming <laughs> so yeah, I mean, the the show talk a lot about your own health in the show and, and related to mortality. Um, I would say, ironically, I think it's probably more physical than than any of your other shows. Uh, you yeah, very, uh, which kind of maybe speaks to uh, overcoming some of those uh, challenges. No, I, I yeah, I know. I talk in the show about how I had bladder cancer and type two diabetes and and uh, a serious sleepwalking disorder. And yeah, I mean. It's weird, you know, sometimes with these shows, they get so personal that I'll be on stage, you know, like I did this for 12 weeks at Lincoln Center and there were eight shows a week and there were times where I'm on stage and I'm thinking like, am I saying this to strangers? Like this really, (laughs) like this this is sort of bizarre. What am I doing? It's almost like I sometimes become the people who are criticizing me in my personal life, like I'm like, uh, like who are like, what are you doing? And I'm on stage and I'm thinking, yeah, what am I doing? She said, well, based on your family history, I would recommend you do cardio five days a week. And I said, I don't think anybody does cardio five days a week. (laughs) She said, a lot of people do cardio five days a week. I said, I don't even think professional athletes do cardio five days a week. She said, professional athletes definitely do cardio five days a week. We talk about this for about 45 minutes. <laughs> we agree to disagree at this point. I'm sweaty and out of breath, a little hungry. I'm always a little hungry. I love how you talk about zooming out to see your life as a story so that you can encourage the main character to make better decisions, which I thought was such a great encapsulation oh, of, of what you do. Is that something that you've always done? Is it something you had to learn how to do to kind of step back and 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 see your life in that way? And and is that helpful? I think I had to learn it. I think, man, when I was, I think in, in high school, in a lot of college and 
in my 20s, I had a lot of anxiety. Like I would I would have like this shortness of breath. I talk about it a little bit in the show where I feel like I can't catch my breath. And and through the years, you know, like I, I started in my 20s, I started to see a therapist. And then at a certain point, I started to to write in a journal. And, and that was when I made that observation, which is when I started writing in a journal, I, I felt like, oh, wow, I, I actually do feel better afterwards. And now I always recommend it to people because I'm like, it's the least expensive form of therapy. Writing in a journal is like, write down what you're saddest about, angriest about, feel strong, most strongly about. Because more, more often than not, like, I, like you're saying, like the, the protagonist thing is true. And then also, you know, you start to go, oh, it's actually not so bad. That's actually not so bad. This is, you know, I'm furious about this. I'm angry about this. And it's like, oh, actually, in the grand scheme of things, that's not that's not too bad. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, something that Pete Holmes talks about a lot about uh, when when you're having a hard day or a hard time, is seeing it as a as a great episode of the TV show of your life. That oh, that would be a good episode. <laughs> really going through it. Yeah, that's great. Just the perspective shift of of thinking about your life as a as a story or as you know. It can be really helpful. Pete has so much wisdom. He, um, when I I was doing this show, The Old Man in the Pool in the West End, and it was very, I, I actually was more depressed than I had been in a few years, maybe many years. And it was, I think a lot of it was because I was uh, just away from my wife and daughter for like five weeks, four weeks. And uh, I was talking to Pete and, and he, and I said, I'm really in a sort of a tough spot. And he recommended this book uh, that I love and I recommend now too, which is called The Power of Now. Um, I think it's Eckhart, Eckhart Tolle, T-O-L-L-E. Eckhart Tolle, yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's very, it's very, it's another example of like therapy for 13 bucks. You know, it's, it's a very powerful book. Um, I believe you turned 45 this year. Um, is that right? True story. True story. Do you, how do you, how do you kind of think of yourself in the, your place in the, in the comedy world. Cause I think there's always this kind of strange thing where you, you inevitably start as sort of a young upstart comedian and there you have all, all these people to look up to and you're emulating people. And now, you know, you are sort of in this, you know, more, uh, middle-aged, I guess, uh, role in, in, in the comedy world. And there are people coming up below you and, and still people that are above you. And how do you sort of, how do you think about that? I had that with, um, you know, one of my favorite comics, and she's come on the podcast a couple of times, is Taylor Tomlinson. And she, uh, <laughs> I think when we maybe first met, she goes, my sister and I used to watch you when we were in middle school. I was like, holy oh, cow. <laughs> yeah. You know, because she's like fully realized, fantastic comedian. And the idea of like middle school, like that's so long ago, right? And, uh, but uh, yeah, it's... It's definitely a different thing, you know, like I, I in, in some ways I feel I feel like I have a foot in both universes. You know, I'm at the Comedy Cellar uh, quite a bit working out jokes and and, and I, I feel like I, I cross paths with a lot of people in their 20s who I feel a kinship with. And then I cross paths with people like Chris Rock and Colin Quinn, who I feel like I have a certain kinship with, too. And it's I don't feel like I'm in one camp or the other. I just feel like I'm somewhere in the middle of those two things. Coming up, Mike weighs in on the big controversy that dominated the comedy world while this podcast was on hiatus. It happened to focus on his good friend Hassan Minhaj, and he has some thoughts. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, 
flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our previous episode with Mike Birbiglia, as well as conversations with other comedians who have appeared on This American Life, like Tignataro and Gary Goldman, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Wednesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple and Spotify to let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Mike Birbiglia. So one story that sort of has been big in the in the comedy world recently that I wanted to touch on with you, um, because I know he's uh, someone who's a friend of yours and has been on your podcast and mine, is the Hassan Minhaj, um, everything that went around with that with The New Yorker. And it made me think of your work as well, because you were both, the two of you are both very much um, storytelling comedians, you do shows that are more, you know, one person shows. I promise this is not a, a, a gotcha kind of thing, but I, yeah, sure. I'm so interested to hear your perspective on it because when I first just like heard that there was this article, my initial reaction was like, what is the big deal? I don't understand. It's, you know, comedians premises, you know, aren't always based on truth and all that. Um, then when I read the article, it, he, they, it actually mentioned this podcast and his appearance on it because he was telling me those same stories sort of as truth in an interview setting, which to me felt a little different, but, and that was sort of, they used that as, as an example of like, he was kind of more blurring the lines, but I, I'm just curious in your perspective on it, you know, did you, what was your reaction to that? Do you think, you know, the, the pushback was sort of like, why are we fact checking comedy? But, you know, I think there was some there was some real interesting stuff that came up in it. So how did you react to that whole thing? I mean, my feeling is like, I love Hassan. I love his comedy. He's a friend. I thought his uh, his video response, I thought, was tremendously well done. Expect nothing less. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 sort of just my feeling about it. I just I just think he's he uh, I think he explained it really well. Now, with everything that's happening in the world. I'm aware even talking about this now feels so trivial. But being accused of faking racism is not trivial. It is very serious and it demands an explanation. So to everyone who read that article, I want to answer the biggest question that's probably on your mind. Is Hassan Minhaj secretly a psycho? Underneath all that pomade, is Hassan Minhaj just a con artist who uses fake racism and Islamophobia to advance his career? Because after reading that article, I would also think that. Did it make you think at all about your own work or, or sort of how you deal with those issues of like, do I bend the truth here a little bit or do I you know, exaggerate or do I conflate things or, or those kind of things? So with my own shows, I always think in relation to 
when I'm telling a story, would I feel comfortable telling that same story uh, to the people who were there? <laughs> you know what I mean? Every now and then I'll have something where where I'm like, oh, well, I, I have to get this right. Like, for example, I talk in my show about having type 2 diabetes and reversing the type 2 diabetes. For me, I was like, oh, I got to make sure that that's true. Uh, because what if someone saw the show and they were like, I'm going to reverse my tube type diabetes, just like Mike. And then they can't, you know, whatever. It's impossible. It's not a real thing. Every now and then I'll have something like that where, where I'll think about that. And, you know, of course, like I have these out, uh, outlandish things that have occurred in my life, like, you know, jumping through a second story window, sleepwalking. And, and, uh, you know, I, I was thinking in relation to like, that's another thing where it's like medical P I don't want to mislead people with my medical medical issues, but, uh, but then there's the, you know, then there's the other side of me, which is, I'm, you know, that I would say I'm in some ways like an Irish storyteller, I think is the expression is like every time you tell a story, it gets a little longer kind of thing. I think memory works like that too. I think like, I think that the more you tell a story, the more, you remember things and sometimes the things I look back and I go, you know, maybe that, well, maybe it wasn't like that or maybe it was, you know, like, like there was this great, this American life story, like years and years and years ago, that was brilliant. It was about these, this couple, they, one of them remembered this massive historical event. It was something like the, it was, it was, it was like John Lennon being shot or something like that. Something really extreme because they lived in the Upper West Side where it happened. And the one person was like, we were there. And the other person was like, we were not there. <laughs> and they're both sort of convinced of whatever their truth was. So I think that there is something to that. And as a storyteller, like my main commitment is to telling a good story. And, uh, and I think, I, I think every comedian sort of arrives at what they're comfortable, how much they're comfortable embellishing a story or not. I actually find like the, more often than not, like a story that's not embellished, like a single word is the wrestling story in the old man in the pool. Like I don't embellish it at all. And it's, it's my favorite story to tell. Cause it's like, if I were under oath in court, that would be how I describe <laughs> it. I'd, I'd say it's like a paperweight being pinned by paper. And all of a sudden there's blood all over the mat. No, I know. How do you think I felt? I was like, I killed this guy, you know what I mean? Like, I'm gonna be on the run from the law for the rest of my life. Rebeglia, the wrestling bandit. One pin, one kill. Couldn't do a push-up. Murdered a young boy with his bare hands. He called them nature's pillows. I realize it's my own blood streaming out of my nose onto the mat based on no physical injury whatsoever. Just from the sheer nervousness of possibly winning anything at all. My, my body's like, what do we do? Let's just bleed. We'll figure it out tomorrow. <laughs> Ref blows a whistle. He goes, blood on the mat, which was obvious. <laughs> this little blood boy runs out with a rag, wipes it down, shots <laughs> off. My teammates plug my nose. They go, Mike, you get back out there. You do what you just did. These fools thought that I knew what I had just done, and I jogged out, and I get in the eye on you, and the ref blows a whistle, and I'm immediately pinned. <laughs> that was the closest I would come to winning a wrestling match for the rest of my life.
do you feel like you've received criticism as a comedian that you've taken to heart or that's sort of changed the way that you've approached something? Either it could be from a professional critic or from an audience member sort of telling you something. Yeah. Every now and then. I mean, I, I have to say, like, I'm, 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 I, I'm always interested in feedback. So, like, in other words, when I do a joke on stage and if it gets a big laugh, that tells me something about what people experienced. If they gasp, that tells me something about what people experienced. If it, if people, someone complains to me after the show, they come up like, hey, hey, that hurt my feelings that this, you said this, that affects the way I feel about it. Um, I remember years ago, I was doing a show. I used to workshop a, t a ton of my material at Union Hall. And I would do, I, I want to say it was like a residency of like Monday nights at Union Hall. And I would do like, it was, I think it was early versions of, of either my girlfriend's boyfriend or thank God for jokes or, or even maybe, yeah. And, and then someone came up to me after the show and they said, Hey, I don't like, I don't like how you said this. And I thought about it. And, and so that, that was one. And then the other one was an email. Someone wrote to me and they said, you said this one joke and, um, I don't think I'll ever come to one of your shows again. And I, I wrote back, here's the reasoning for the joke, and here was the thought process, and then I might do the joke again, I might not, but I totally hear what your point is, and the person wrote back, like, okay, I will return to your shows, thank you for your, you know, it's, so it's an interesting thing where it's like, I, I actually am very interested in what, so a lot of comedians aren't interested in what the audience has to say. I'm actually very interested because I, I, ultimately the shows are about the audience. It's, you know, it's my stories. It's things that I've observed, but, but really it's about, well, what do we have in common? What do we all have in common? We're not an I love you family. Um, we say, take care. <laughs> it's okay for you to laugh at that because it's not the same. Uh, <laughs> at all. It's actually not even that similar. Uh, it's an unusual substitution because, first of all, it doesn't have the word love in it. <laughs> Second of all, it's sort of a passive-aggressive command. Like, like, I'm going to need you to do something for me. Take care. You know what I mean? And I tried to reverse this, like, in subtle ways over the years. Like, one year for Mother's Day, I called my mom. I go, Mom, I really appreciate you. And it was silent on the other end for a few moments. And then she said, bye now. Now it's time for our segment called The First Laugh. Um, this is, you know, our version of the slow round uh, from your podcast. <laughs> yes, I would say yes. it's sort of, a, sort of a medium round, somewhere between a, a speed round and a slow round. Okay. So going all the way back, do you remember the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid growing up? I, it was SNL. We had a VHS cassette of the best of John Belushi. And so it would be like the cheeseburger, 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 no fries, chips. And it was hilarious. I mean, it was just so, I, I feel like I watched it over and over again. And uh, yeah, I, I, I feel like what's funny is when you're, I never, I haven't thought about this in years, but your question sort of provokes it in my brain. But it's like, I feel like when you're a kid, you don't even, you're, you're not even really told what comedy is. You know, people just put it on. Yeah, and it's you just see thing. it. Yeah, you're just watching John Belushi, and you have no context for this thing at all. You know, and he's he's playing. He's the Blues Brothers. He's this. You know, he's a bee. You know, he's dressed up as a bee. He's he's in, you know he's off the wall. And I think it, it's uh 
It's such a pure experience watching comedy when you're a kid because there's no one telling you this is funny or this isn't funny. It's just like, if it makes you laugh, it's funny. Did that start your SNL, uh, lifelong SNL obsession? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and then I grew, you know, I grew up in, grew up in the 80s and the 90s and, and the 90s was that era of like the Sandler era and it was like Norm MacDonald and... I mean Dana Carvey. I mean those that those casts were so talented. Do you still have any aspirations to uh, to host SNL or uh, or be involved in it in some way? I mean I just love the show and and uh, certainly if the phone rang I would be thrilled. But I I'm not you know. Yeah, well after Nate Bargatze got it, I don't know. I feel like it's it's a uh, stand ups yeah. or yeah. Yeah, he and, he, and he killed. He killed. He's he's fantastic. He was so good. Going back to sort of the, your earliest days of stand-up, do you remember the first joke that you told on stage that really worked? That you <laughs> you felt like, oh, I I think I have something here. For, so early in the early in my career, I was it was very much like I was kind of mimicking Stephen Wright, who's the first comedian I'd ever seen live, and and that was when I was like maybe sixteen, my brother Joe took me to Stephen Wright at the Cape Cod Melody Tent and I thought, Oh, I gotta do that. And so I for a while there, I was doing these jokes that were very kind of esoteric. You know, I'd hate to be a, a stick insect because all the other insects are always bumping into you and you gotta be like, watch it. And they're like, You look like a <laughs> stick and you're like, Yeah, I have eyes and they're like, Yeah, they were closed, you know. And so like that would be the whole <laughs> joke. Like that and I had tons of those, you know, like I like wall to wall, you know and and at a certain point i i told a joke on stage that was about how i had a serious girlfriend and i i got the feeling she wanted to have kids which is sad cuz we're going to have to break up you know i've just decided i'm not going to have kids until i'm sure that nothing else good can happen in my life and and it was the first laugh where it was like based on a truism ab about how i felt as opposed to something I observed or something that I'd lived versus observed. And I think it was sort of the first peek into like, oh, wow, like there's a certain laugh from opening up to an audience about like in a confessional way where they lock into what you're experiencing because they see themselves in what you're experiencing. And I was like, oh, wow, that's cool. That's like a really connected experience. Like I feel very connected to the audience at this moment. So I sort of craved that. And then when I was got out of school, I, I performed at the Moth storytelling series. And I told this, this story that ended up in my girlfriend's boyfriend years later about how in high school I had my first girlfriend, but she told me not to tell anyone she was my girlfriend because she had another boyfriend and at home. And then she invited me to meet her parents and I met her parents. But then this other guy was there and I realized that I'm with my girlfriend's boyfriend. And, and he invites us to all go to his parents' house. And I say, it's very nerve wracking meeting your girlfriend's boyfriend's parents for the first time, because in some ways you're very upset, but in another way, you kind of, you still want to make a good impression. And slowly it dawns on me that I'm hanging out with my girlfriend's boyfriend. <laughs> and there was some consolation because uh, every time she would, uh, every time he would sort of like go to the bathroom or go in the other room, she'd be very affectionate to me. <laughs> And every time that, uh, but, then, but then there was a moment where I was in the bathroom and I thought, what's happening in the other room, you know? 
so um, the story took a strange turn when uh, they suggested that we go hang out at his house. <laughs> so we go, and uh, I met his parents. <laughs> and it's a very nerve-wracking thing meeting your girlfriend's boyfriend's parents for the first time. <laughs> you don't want to make a bad impression. <laughs> That was like one of the first jokes I had where I was like, oh, this is like not only like a confession and a truism about my life, it's embarrassing. Like it's genuinely an embarrassing story and something I was really reluctant to say out loud to anyone, never mind strangers, uh, for years. So that was a big epiphany for me because that that's what I ended up doing to this day. That was, you know, that was in my 20s. Yeah, it's like you kind of had to break through the fear of that to, but once, maybe once you did, has it, has it been easier to kind of confess things or do you feel like it's still scary? Yeah. I, I think, I mean, look, it's hard, it's always hard to confess things, but it's like, I, I feel like my takeaway from all of it is just nobody cares. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't matter. Like you think your secrets are so important. You think your, your flaws are so important and these confessions are like, like anyone's going to be jumping down your throat. It's like, no, like it's everybody. Everybody's struggling. Everybody's dealing with their own insecurities and, and their own, everyone's got stuff. You know, it's like you might not sleepwalk through a window, but you've, you know, you used to, you know, pee in your bed, you know, for, you know, or, 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 or you, you, you know, you ended up, uh, you know, it was an awful injury that that uh, didn't allow you to have friends for five years in your life, and you ended up being an introvert, and it was debilitating. And you know, everybody has stuff, and it's like, and it's you know, the whole thing is like, if your thing is sleepwalking, it's like, how can you convey that in a way that's so specific that people start to see their own debilitating, challenging thing that they have or have had in in you. Do you remember uh, the first time you met one of your comedy heroes and and just the experience of of meeting them for the first time? I I feel like um probably the you know the the the, the most mind boggling uh, person who has I've uh, interfaced with luckily is is Steve Martin and it's uh, he's come to a handful of my shows over the years and and it, when he's in the audience I, I have this thing where I'm. I'm look if I if I spot him if I see him I start to feel self-conscious because I'm thinking to myself I've stolen all of this from you. <laughs> you know, and of yeah. course not the material itself but just like my concept of what comedy even is, you know, and I feel like a lot of people have that with him because he was such a seminal comedy figure and I, I used to drive around the country in my mom's station wagon when I got out of college to these like college gymnasiums and cafeterias and things like that. And I used to listen to Steve Martin uh, albums, like CDs in the car. And the idea of talking to him is just like, you know, it's, it's that, that, that's, I, I think that that's the coolest one. Is it intimidating to talk to him or do you feel like you know him, like you knew him already before you met him? It's always a little intimidating. And then the, oh, recently Jimmy Kimmel, I, was, I announced the special on Jimmy Kimmel and then he he took me out to dinner with Martin Short. It's another one, yeah. I was I was not unfazed by this. I was very phased. I was very like aware of every word I was saying. And I was, <laughs> my own voice was echoing in my head and, you know, like... 
I was like, what if I, is, is that the wrong, should I hold back? Should I just be quiet for a little bit? You know, like a lot of like internal monologue going, but he was, he couldn't be sweeter and, you know, he's kind and he has so much wisdom. Yeah. Um, speaking of Kimmel, I often ask about uh, comedians' late night stand-up debuts, um, but I'd, I'd love to ask you about your late night hosting debut when you got to step in out of uh, out of nowhere for Kimmel um, and and host the show uh, on very very late notice. Yeah, that was uh, that was a fascinating thing. It was one of those things where he he got COVID. I was supposed to be on the show. I was doing the old man in the pool in Chicago, and I flew to L.A. And then I, when I basically I got a text message in the air that he was gonna he needed me to host and fill in for him and so for like basically a week I got to be a talk show host which is <laughs> I mean it's the the strangest turn I could imagine which is it's a kind of like uh, take your child to work day or something like it's I I don't I'm completely not. Uh, prepared for this. I don't, I've never been a talk show host before. I've never, I don't have the skills. I don't, you know, this is what I found out about doing something like that is, is that people just come out of the woodwork from your life, people from my childhood and all, you know, emailing yeah, who me. Maybe, who maybe had never seen any of your other work. No, uh, completely, completely. It's just like a, it's a whole universe of people who, who tune into uh, late night shows. And, and it, it was, uh, it was a gift, you know, it was a gift from Jimmy to me that I, I, uh, I feel so grateful for. I'll feel it's like, it's one of those once in a lifetime things. What are the odds you'd ever host a talk show for a week in your life? It's crazy. I, uh, I am not Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, I'm like a <laughs> totally different person. Uh, you may have heard Jimmy is out with COVID. Uh, don't worry. He's okay. But I'm your substitute teacher for tonight, Mike Birbiglia, or as I'm known in the news. Kimmel announced on Twitter that comedian Mike uh, uh, Birbiglia, oh, I'm sorry to say his name. Thanks to Mike Birbiglia. Now, Mike Birbiglia will take the reins. Comedian Mike Birbiglia will fill in. Comedian Mike Birbiglia. Birbiglia is going to be filling in. Comedian Mike Birbiglia will fill in for late night host Jimmy Kimmel. It just rolls off the tongue. Your first guest, I believe, was supposed to be Tom Cruise. But <laughs> yeah, he decided can't, maybe can't maybe hold. he didn't want to do that. Was that a, was that a relief, or uh, were you disappointed that you weren't didn't get to sit down with Tom Cruise? Oh my God, I would have loved it. I'm like the I'm I'm a massive fan. <laughs> can you think of something uh, in your career that you said no to that you now wish you had said yes to? All I can, you know. It's usually nose from the other end of the table, I would say. Uh, I was I auditioned for <laughs> to be Jim from The Office. I auditioned to be Jonah from Veep. I auditioned to be Buster on uh, Arrested Development. Like I, <laughs> yeah, those are some good. Those are some good roles. Everything you see on television that you like, I auditioned for. Uh, and so it's you usually know. you're not the one saying no, is what you're saying. No, yeah, exactly. But but I, I'm trying to think of anything actually that I said no to. No, I feel like a lot. You know, a vast majority of my career in the last 15 years has been just like stuff where I create shows and little movies and little shows, and and sometimes they get big. Sometimes they go to Broadway, and 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 that's been kind of uh, yeah. That it, it, I've been I've been lucky in that way. Is there anything that you said yes to that you wish you had said no to? Oh my gosh, <laughs> I don't. 
I can't think of anything. Although I will say, like, one time I was on the set of a movie. There wasn't much for my character to do. I won't say the name of the movie because I don't want anyone to get in trouble. But it's there wasn't much for my character to do. But my, the premise of my character is I was chasing someone. and Or I was, I'm sorry. The premise was I was being chased by someone. And you haven't been in that many movies, so we might be able to figure <laughs> this out. <laughs> but, um, okay. Well, actually, you know what? I'll say, I can say what it go, is, but it, it, was called hot <laughs> it was called Hot Pursuit. Oh, yeah. It's and all about being, chasing. I was being chased by Reese Witherspoon and character. And, and uh, it was in New Orleans. And it's a very small part. It's like literally one scene in this movie. It's the top of the movie. I get chased, and then you. The reveal is they were on a date the whole time. Like they, the 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 two characters were on a date. I have to admit, I missed this one. So <laughs> we're in New Orleans, and uh, it's just raining and raining and raining. And then they are like, "All right, we're gonna roll." And I and I'm running away, and I just fully fall on my ass, like I'm flat backed on the pavement in new orleans and i'm thinking to myself like am i paralyzed like this is bad i'm in a lot of pain right now like this is terrible and uh and then they were just like let's go again you know what i mean i mean it was so <laughs> it was it was there was no bedside manner with it, it was just yeah, like okay yeah. we're going again and they were, uh, they were not concerned yeah and I, that was actually one moment where i'm like maybe i shouldn't have taken this one <laughs> But then in the end, I mean, it was so cool to meet Reese Witherspoon and 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 the director and the crew was awesome. But it was like, it was definitely like one of those, like, what am I doing here moments. <laughs> um, well, that could have been an answer to my next and final question, but maybe you have another story you can share. Uh, something in your career that makes you laugh now, but really was not funny when it happened. Oh my gosh. Um, I'm trying to think of a good one. Like when I was... Uh, I'm trying to think of a I'm trying to think of a good like road story starting out cuz I you know when I was starting out I was driving around the country and I was <laughs> well this is like the first time I got paid to do stand up uh was at this place called Fat Tuesdays in in Virginia and I drove out and I was probably 20 21 years old they they said they'd give me $40 or whatever to perform uh let's say 25 minutes of comedy. And I knew I did not have 25 minutes of comedy, but, but, but I was like, okay, I, they're going to pay me. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to say yes. Yes, exactly. So I'm, so I'm backstage, which is basically like the sidewalk of a strip mall. And I'm, I, I, I said to the headliner who I didn't know, I go, Hey, I, I don't know if I have 25 minutes. And, and he goes, yeah, you, it's okay. You can just make fun of people. I was like, I don't think that's really my skill set. But, but, uh, <laughs> and then they open the door and they go, Mike, you're on. And I, and I turn around, and I throw up on the sidewalk and then I walk on stage and I perform about four minutes of comedy and I say, thank you very much. And then I bring on the headliner and, and then I was, I was, and then I was paid like, you know, $50 or whatever it is. And I, and I just, I thought this is great news. I'm a professional comedian, but, <laughs> but like, <laughs> but I, it is one of those things that at the time it was, it was so sad of, and lonely, honestly, like I'd say at a stand up at its worst is very lonely because you're, it's just you. Yeah. You're out and, there in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. yeah. You're throwing up on this, on the sidewalk of a strip mall and then bombing. 
And it's, there's something about it that, uh, in hindsight, it's very funny to me, but holy cow, at the time, I wanted to, I wanted to hide under a rock. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. Um, and yeah, your, your new show is fantastic. And I'm just thrilled that everyone will get to see it on Netflix um, because I think uh, everyone will really get a lot out of it. Thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'll see you soon. All right. Thanks so much to Mike Birbiglia for coming back on the podcast this week. His latest special, The Old Man in the Pool, is streaming now on Netflix. And you can get tickets for his upcoming Please Stop the Ride tour at Burbigs.com. And if you're not already listening to his Working It Out podcast, I highly recommend you check that out wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on threads at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram and threads where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.